I'm Conrad Marshall, and from the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, this is Good Weekend Talks, a magazine for your ears in which we take a deep dive into the definitive stories of the day. We've recently relaunched the podcast into a new look, or should I say new sound, format, in which top journalists from across our newsrooms host conversations with the people capturing the imagination of Australia right now. In this week's episode, we speak with Indigenous writer Evelyn Araluen, who at 29 is the youngest ever winner of the Stella Prize. Araluen picked up the Australian Literary Award for Women and Non-Binary Writers in May for her book of poetry, Drop Bear. That book has since racked up sales of nearly 15,000 to date, making it an unheard-of success in the relatively niche writing genre of poetry. Raised in Sydney, Araluen is a descendant of the Bundjalung Nation, an English PhD candidate at the University of Sydney, and also co-editor of the literary journal Overland. And hosting this conversation is Brody Carmody, a national news blogger and former culture writer with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, but also a poet himself. Brody, who published his own book of poetry, Flat Exit, in 2017, and is working on a forthcoming book as we speak, talks to Araluen about everything from the rise of First Nations literature to what a $60,000 prize can do for a young writer. Thanks, Conrad, and welcome, Evelyn. Hi, how's it going? Really good, thank you. I want to take you back to the day you found out you'd won this year's Stella Prize, which is a $60,000 prize for awarded to a woman writer, an Australian woman writer. What was your reaction? Well, I was pretty giddy, a bit delirious. I was also a little bit jet-lagged. I'd just come back from the Adelaide Writers Festival and I actually had a tiny bit of a heads up that something was going to be happening with it because while I was in the green room, they called me and they were like, hey, how are you going? Um, we just wanted to have a bit of a yarn with you. And I thought, oh, great. Okay, cool. Um, well, actually, some of the other some of the other um, long listees are, are here in the green room with me right now. Should I pop you on speaker? And they're like, no, no, actually, we might, we might check back with you in your home. So I kind of, I was getting a little bit excited. I'm not going to lie. I, I was a little bit hopeful, hopeful that I would have made the short list and I was still waiting on that news and they decided to tell me all at once. So, yeah, exhausted from a flight and a long festival and super anxious about it and just pretty delirious. Yeah, like I ran around the house, I picked up the dog, she hated being picked up. It was a really traumatic experience for her, but it was it was just pure unadulterated joy, one that I hadn't really anticipated. So it was a good day. It was a pretty solid day. Your dog's trauma aside, yeah, uh, and obviously the you know personal excitement. More broadly, it was also exciting, I guess, for the industry when we all found out because it was the first time that poetry was eligible and not just fiction or nonfiction. Yeah, I think it was a really exciting move for them to be making, and it was one that I know they'd had a lot of, you know, encouragement to move forwards on because we were seeing for quite a few years some really exciting new poetry collections, new presses that were publishing really wonderful work from writers who otherwise don't really get to be a part of that broad public discussion about literature. Poetry is a it is a niche and I think that is 
that is to some extent understandable, but when we think about the role that booksellers play, that publishers play, that, you know, these these um, publicity advocates for, for new, exciting writing from Australian writers, there has been a lot of resistance to really giving poetry a place and centering poetry in any kind of conversation about literature. And as well, it is also a place that has had a lot of cultural and linguistic diversity, a lot of formal experimentation and innovation. So I think it was a really good call, not simply because, you know, it meant that Drop Bear was eligible, which I didn't know until after the book was published, to be honest. I, I, you know, had dreamed of the Stella being something that maybe years down the track I would be eligible for if I ever, you know, wrote some fiction. It was a really exciting move for me to see as somebody who does also work in the industry because this means that there's an extra incentive and there's an extra drive for publishers to really create these spaces. There's an incentive for booksellers to create that little bit of extra room on the shelf to you know, make sure that poetry is actually getting out there to its audience. Totally. Uh, one only needs to go to their local bookshop to see the space that's dedicated to Australian fiction and then compare that to poetry. And for those at home, poetry titles often sell maybe just in the hundreds or they print yeah. hundreds, but you know they print thousands for fiction and nonfiction. You said before that poetry is a bit of a niche. In my experience, people are often really scared when, they, when you tell them that you're a poet or that you like reading poetry. Why do you think that is? I think we just have not gotten over a bit of high school angst in a lot of ways Um, and it's kind of understandable like if your first encounters and the majority of your encounters with a particular literary form are really restrained to convention and technique and you know really thinking about emphasizing the canon as opposed to new and exciting experimental voices yeah you're gonna have a really outdated view on it that's kind of institutionalized so I'm not surprised when I hear people who tell me that they've never read any poetry since high school and that you know they really don't find much of an interest in poetry or if they do know about contemporary poetry it's it's a really narrow kind of field and it's not necessarily one that is as supportive of all of the variation and all of the shades of different poetry that's out there at the moment so I'm not I'm not too judgmental about it surprisingly because I'm a relatively judgmental person (laughs) but um, I do think we're at a really well-equipped time now where it doesn't take much energy, it doesn't take much research, it doesn't take much effort to find really interesting, exciting poetry, to find poetry that speaks to pretty much everybody out there who would be interested in reading. So it's something that I just hope that people have, you know, have a willingness to actually invest that tiny little bit of additional energy that it takes. Whereas, you know, yeah, of course, there's tons of great fiction and non-fiction out there that's being sort of handed to audiences, really encouraging you to grab this, read this new release and the prize cycles overemphasizing that. And, you know, there's so much energy towards that. And that's great. But this is not you know, a finite resource. The energy that we can be spending on encouraging people to read doesn't have to just be formally excluded to, you know, what we're used to. That's where poetry actually is able to track um, really well with a lot of, you know, with a lot of new experimentation, with a lot of new subjects and interests. And so I think it is a really well-equipped form for the way that our attentions are changing as well. 
Mm, that's really interesting. I, I know when I studied literature, it wasn't until my final year of high school that I realised that poetry wasn't just, you know, Shakespeare or John Donne. And that's mm-hmm. a little bit like telling someone about music and saying, just listen to classical music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and I think that there's a lot of pressure on educators to not only equip students and young people with skills but also with passion and I I really understand that it can be kind of difficult and you want to teach skills that are accessible and it'll go on and help support people in their everyday lives but you know isn't there something really important to be said about the capacity to express yourself and to understand your inner own inner workings and thoughts and feelings and poetry has always been about giving a language to that so I do think you know I, I don't think it's over overstating things to say that like poetry is really quite relevant to more people than our conventional institutionalized educational systems might let us think. I'm going to put you on the spot here. You said that there's some poets out there who in Australia are on the forefront of, you know, doing some really interesting experimental contemporary work. Who should we be reading? Ah, I love that question. That's a great question. I mean, I always really have just such a strong love for First Nations poetry. That's that's where my research interest is. That's also where my kind of community interest is. So poets like Alison Whitaker and Ellen Van Nieven, I think are amazing. Janine Lane uh, has a new collection coming out next year of kind of archival docu-poetry, which is really interesting and experimental. Natalie Harkin has done a lot of that, that similar kind of work as well herself. Um, So I love what's going on in First Nations publishing at the moment, but there's also really exciting visual, much more kind of artistic and creative work. Bella Lee, uh, who publishes with Vagabond, which is a dedicated poetry press. Bella's work is just so gorgeous and experimental and really like it's got all of those beautiful lyrical qualities but she's also a visual artist and I think that that's you know Argosy is my favorite book of hers to just like give to people as a present because it just lets me say like hey did you know how beautiful poetry can be as well as interesting and political and historical and formally inventive but it is also like a very pretty thing you can have on your shelf or on your desk and can just pick up and open to give you comfort. So I really think actually like women and queer writers are kind of leading leading things a lot in poetry at the moment. But that's also, again, probably my bias. But it's a good bias to have, I think. <laughs> We're not going to hold it against you, that's for sure. Yeah, you're totally right to say that, you know, people's work like Bella Lee's is a beautiful object, not just beautiful poetry. And I wish more people gave poetry books as gifts in the same way as maybe cookbooks. Mm. Um, and yeah, I love that you mentioned Alison Whitaker because the stuff that they're doing in terms of uh, their legal knowledge yeah. and their poetry and combining that is just really fantastic. And I guess to bring it back to Drop Bear, in this book, you also draw on your academic uh, expertise. Um, and a really big theme is deconstructing the pastoral and the colonial. What uh, It might be an obvious question, but what made you want to tackle such heavy topics? Well, I think that, you know, the way that I honestly have to kind of describe it is that, like, my interest in these subjects as a form of critique kind of actually came 
before my poetic abilities. And so it really was a sort of a research interest that was obviously born out of my own particular set of experiences, being an Aboriginal person, but also growing up in an area that was in this sort of, you know, became a site of industrial transformation, you know, um, the Cumberland Plains, the Hawkesbury region, Greater Western Sydney obviously has, you know, some of the longest history of colonisation in this country. And that has always been a sort of an ever-changing landscape depending on what the colonies interest and needs and requirements in terms of resourcing and exploitative uses of the land would be. So I grew up in a semi-rural area, like I grew up surrounded by fields and trees and that was the place that I knew. And um, as, you know, that, that colony's demands and expectations and needs from the land shift, it slowly started to industrialise around me. And that change, obviously, you know, the pastoral is not the first site of our land. It's not how our land is in its most sovereign state. That is itself a transformation. But it was a really strange context to grow up in, to grow up around in and to have that add complexity to my own relationship to country that was, you know, structured through culture and structured through ancestry and spirituality and those different those different drives. So I've always had an interest in the way in which the nation makes itself and justifies itself and how national culture seeks to present itself with different images and dress itself up in different clothes. And you know, that became that became a research interest because I wanted to get a better sense of how to actually critique and deconstruct that. But the poetry kind of almost came after because as I was writing this PhD that I was doing at the University of Sydney that was really just about, mostly actually just about centering the work of women and non-binary First Nations writers in Australia, I was also really having to come up against and confront the literature of the colony and the claims that it made over our lives and our stories. And I was writing deconstructive work. I was writing critical, theoretical work. And the poetry was almost like the way that I footnoted that was almost the kind of like that paratextual practice of kind of working outside of the margins, of giving myself some way of expressing this that felt more more natural to me, more true to me, and allowed me to kind of balance the work that I had to be doing to justify my role as a student, as an academic, as a critic or whatever it was that I was I was attempting to do or be. And then kind of like alongside that, working as closely as I possibly could with my own articulations of that. And, um, you know, it didn't, I didn't honestly really see it as a book until quite late in the process, but it ended up kind of organising itself around a couple of themes and ideas that you know, that ended up getting finished before the PhD did. And not just finished, but winning awards. Uh, Bonus. Yeah, bonus. Uh, Really did not anticipate that one, to be honest. (laughs) And now, let's hear you read a verse from Drop Bear. Index Australis. Straya is a wild, straggly abyss with one fence struck through, a line of tin dogs guarding the coal from the flies. Straya is brown and sharp when you watch it through the car window, through the convex humming screen. 
Straya in sepia 35mm with sweat rolling across a tan, with that thin shirt sticking to skin. Straya trailing tin foils through red dirt on its way to the pool party in the inland sea. The doof in the desert, the biggest, baddest bash since time immemorial. Everyone wants to rave on the oldest earth on earth. No law against that. No laws for nothing in the age of entitlement, in the decolonial Dundee. And well may we say we will decide who and how. Well may we be not lectured and well may we do it slowly. But Dahl, this is a drama, not a document. Straya is a man's country, and you're here to die lovely against the rock, to fold linenly into horizon and sweat beautiful blonde on the beach. Baby, don't you know this is a weeping song, and you'd be so beautiful in that brown creek. Thanks, Evelyn. That was beautiful. The landscape isn't the only key thread throughout Drop Bear. Fictional Australian characters like Snugglepot and Cuddle Pie are woven throughout the book here and there. Were Kitsch Australian stories your first experiences into literature? That's an interesting question in a kind of like a historical sense because it also questions what we define as literature. I mean, I grew up with parents who really did want to endeavour to tell us stories and to tell us cultural stories, but also like, you know, just constantly letting us make up and um, prodding us along with these little these little fantasy fairy stories we had about the bush around us. And that kind of had this weird porosity with the books that they were reading us and that we had access to. And there were like material conditions that sort of structured why those were the books. They were often, you know, books that were um, consistently in print, um, these, these, you know, big, important canonical works of Australian children's literature. They remain in print to this day. They were really easy to get copies of, whether it be, you know, the secondhand book sale out the front of the library, whether it be that they were sold in Coles and Woolworths really cheaply. Uh, My parents didn't, like, inherit kids' books or anything like that. They had to go out and get all of that stuff for us, and they wanted as much as possible to give us stories about the Australian landscape. They didn't want to give us English countryside stories or, you know, American Midwestern cowboy stories or anything like that. They wanted us as much as possible to know about the land that we're from. You know, and this was before the really rich and lucky period that we're in right now where we have this, like, great range of First Nations kids' books. And so, you know, these books were what was available, what was affordable, and, you know, and I I still have a weird kind of love for them. I'm not necessarily trying to trying to go out and cancel Mae Gibbs. Um, Edith Pedley, I've got a massive issue with. I will I will admit that one. Dot and the Kangaroo is really problematic. It, you know, like to be raised with these stories alongside a kind of a critical understanding and awareness that they were, you know, that they were erasing the other histories, the real histories, the true histories of those places, which mum and dad always really tried to make sure we understood. You know, you kind of have this weird contradictory understanding of the narratives and of the role of these stories and so I don't know um it was more it, my interest in them didn't reignite until I started seeing non-aboriginal people other people 
kind of reconstitute them as kitsch, you know. Like I started to see the trend of the snuggle pot and cuddle pie prints on everything and expensive designer brands would start to have all of these little icons of kitschy Australiana in their in their designs and they were really expensive and they were selling back an idea of Australia through this lens of cultural cringe. So it was this really weird, ironic consumption and I just found that so strange and bizarre and uncomfortable and that was the kind of the entry point back into reflecting on a lot of these stories and really trying to interrogate what you know what their actual hold had been not just on me but on Australian nationalist culture in general I've definitely had some blinky bill t-shirts trying you know popping up on my Instagram feed of people oh, trying yeah. to sell me <laughs> aggressive Instagram algorithms just yes. they really want us they really want us in all of that kitschy gear mm. So this is a question that I really wanted to ask. About 10 years ago, there was a big push towards representation. For example, uh, if there was a writer's panel about Australia, the question would be asked, why doesn't that panel include a First Nations artist? Now, it seems as though the focus is on authenticity. A TV show might have an Indigenous character. Uh, The question now might be, was that character written or directed by a First Nations person? I wanted to ask you, what do you think is the next hurdle for non-Indigenous creators and thinkers to work through or perhaps even overcome? It's a big question and it's one that I think, you know, can be predicated on this idea of, you know, this progress narrative towards true equity and responsibility in in our media landscape. And I think that they're valid questions to ask and often do actually come from a really productive space, like really wanting to ensure that everybody gets to be included and that inclusivity is not necessarily just a tokenistic gesture, that it is, as you say, it's shifting towards really more so about authenticity. You know, you can have a black fella in the room, but like, does that person have a voice? Does that person have agency? Are they there because they want to be there or have they been kind of placed in a position in which they feel beholden? to the other people in that space to legitimise them, to validate them. And so, you know, I don't know if we're necessarily at a period in which that inclusion is always actually sufficient or it's ethically situated or that it comes actually, you know, with real agency and with real support and then real outcomes in terms of community, like that gets back to people, that really benefits people and helps, you know, helps actually like address some of the social, cultural inequities that we have that um, really do divide us all. I think there's a lot of momentum, but I'm hesitant about whether that momentum is moving towards productivity, it's moving towards like something that's actually like a real social good, that it's useful, that it can help people in any kind of legitimate way and that we're not kind of just diversifying otherwise really, you know, really hollow, quite shallow systems and structures and institutions. So... You know, in terms of like the hurdles that are facing non-Indigenous creators and artists in this space, I'm not sure that those big hurdles, you know, um, I'm not sure that diversity and inclusion is really the face of that. In fact, I actually think that that whole movement has been really honestly quite co-opted to distance us from other sorts of inequities that are 
really still much more active in these spaces for First Nations people, for culturally and linguistically diverse people, for working class people. And those things are like wage equity. They're about safe working conditions. They're about things like superannuation and ensuring that there is a sustainability for people's careers. And those really material considerations require a lot more advocacy than what they actually really do receive because the the kind of the dressing on so many of these conversations about how do we improve the arts sector, how do we improve the media landscape, is really focusing on essentially what amounts to sometimes quite superficial changes and, um, you know, restructurings of these structures and systems for, for like, pretty limited benefit. It's Representation is, like, tremendously important and I value it extensively and I think that you're always going to make better art if you are ensuring that everybody in that room has a right to be there, has agency and has a good voice and, you know, their voice is maintained and represented. But the baseline of that does actually need to be good, safe working conditions for everyone. We need sustainable wages. We need to ensure that the culture of a workspace is safe and healthy. It's not exploitative. And if we can address those real structural inequities, it's going to be easier to make sure that those people in the room, that everybody in the room is safe being there, is sustained, is happy or as happy as we all can be, you know, in in wage labour. Um, and and I, I value those things because I think that they benefit everybody and I think that if there are people who have a position of advocacy and have a position of influence, it's all it's really great to use that to support inclusion. But at the same time, just getting everybody into the room is, is like a fraction of the work. We have to ensure that that room is actually a safe place to be. I have to ask, do you have another poetry book in you? Probably not another poetry book, no. Why not? Um, I I feel like this was a really structured project. This was a really a fixed project. I was trying to think about a particular set of ideas and, you know, and, and critiques. And I'm proud of Drop Bear. Like, there's more I could have put in there. There's other things that I could do, you know, and it feels like a book that is of the time in which I wrote it. I was in my early 20s when I was writing the vast majority of it and, you know, and I grew into the collection and made it as strong as I could. But, um, you know, I, I was not starting off my writing career as a poet. I did not expect to be a poet. I thought I was going to be writing novels. I thought maybe I'll write essays one day. But, like, honestly, I, I the, the poetry kind of came as a surprise and I genuinely don't know if I'd write another book of poetry for quite a long time. I think I'm trying to, I'm trying to get back into the sort of things that I was originally trying to write. So this has been like the most elaborate segue of a career um, and, and my writing career will start eventually at some point, I guess. A very, very successful segue. Evelyn, thanks for your time. No worries. Thanks for having me. Good Weekend Talks is brought to you by the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Subscriptions power our newsrooms. To support independent journalism, search subscribe Sydney Morning Herald or The Age. And if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe, rate and comment wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Good Weekend Talks is produced by Julia Carr-Katzel. 
technical assistance from Cormac Lally, editing from Conrad Marshall, Tom McKendrick is head of audio, and Katrina Strickland is the editor of Good Weekend.